Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor in Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. It's a pleasure to be with you on this Palm Sunday morning for our Pastor's Bible Class. Welcome if you're joining us in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM. And I also welcome all who are joining us, maybe even worldwide, on KFUO.org. We're doing things a little bit differently given these rather unique times that we are experiencing right now. We're pre-recording this class, and so we do not have uh, anybody with us uh, recording this alone actually on the Wednesday prior to Palm Sunday. But it's a pleasure to be able to study the Word of God with you, and we'll endeavor to keep that happening as we move forward through these very unique and interesting times. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the love you have for us, and especially also the love your Son has for us, that love that drove him to the cross in our place, where he took upon himself all of our sin, all the guilt for our sin. And we thank you that through his life and death and resurrection, we have forgiveness and everlasting life. We thank you also for your word, your revelation to us of so many wonderful things. And we thank you for this opportunity to study that word together. May your Holy Spirit guide and bless that study. In Jesus' name, amen. As we normally do, we're going to be looking at the scripture readings for the following Sunday. So this will be the scripture readings for Easter Sunday. There are a few uh, uh, choices to be made, or a few options, I guess you would say, when it comes to the lessons uh, for Easter Sunday. I've chosen to use as our gospel lesson Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. The epistle lesson is Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And there is an option to use Acts 10 uh, for the, in place of, I should say, the Old Testament lesson, uh, making it the first reading of the day, and I'm going to do that as well. So we'll look at Acts 10, 34 through 43 instead of the option that we have to look at Jeremiah. And I'm going to take them in that order, in the order that I just uh, announced them. Uh, obviously, so important is Matthew's account here, the resurrection of our Savior. Uh, Colossians has a lot to say, connecting baptism uh, to being raised with Christ, and we'll talk about that. And then finally talk about uh, the section in Acts where we have Peter uh, talking in so many wonderful ways, again, about the resurrection and post-resurrection appearances uh, of Christ. So let's begin, if we could, with Matthew 28, uh, looking at verses 1 through 10. And maybe just to break this down a little bit, uh, as we'll see in verse 1, uh, Matthew connects uh, the resurrection and the experience at the tomb uh, with what has happened uh, previously, namely the, the death of Christ on Good Friday, and he helps set up that contrast with the fact that they're going to the tomb, they're going to the graveside. Uh, then in verses 2 through 4, we see the dramatic uh, action uh, by the angel, the descent of the angel and the dramatic action uh, that he takes uh, at the tomb. Verses 5 through 7, uh, we have the angel's words to the women, and there are two commands that he gives to them, stop being afraid and go and say to his disciples, we'll take a look at those. In verse 8, we'll see how the women obey uh, the angel's words. Verses 9 through 10, we have Jesus himself greeting these two women. 
And then verse 10, Jesus repeats the angel's words, uh, what, what uh, the women should say to the disciples, and uh, puts a little bit a different um, uh, shape on them. We'll take a look at that. By the way, I want to be uh, very complimentary here and uh, give tribute to Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs for his excellent commentary, uh, really on all of, of Matthew, but uh, I was very uh, indebted to him for his work on this uh, text that we're looking at today, and uh, so want to thank him for his work. Let's uh, take a look now, starting at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, now the Sabbath, of course, would have been sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. So uh, we're talking about Friday uh, evening until the start of Saturday uh, evening. So it says there, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So this would have been very, very early on Sunday morning. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Well, Mary Magdalene, of course, we don't know a lot about her, except she is from the town of Magdala, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today. Uh, there's great excavation work going on there. It is a wonderful place uh, to visit. I've been there twice myself, been blessed to be there twice. Um, Mary Magdala, we know, was at the crucifixion. Uh, we know she witnessed uh, Jesus' burial. And this one that is the, uh, called the Other Mary, we think that this is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Uh, she is mentioned actually in verse 57, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 27, verse 56, verse 56 of the previous uh, chapter. And uh, she is listed as being there with Mary Magdalene and the sons of Zebedee, of course, James and John. So we think it's probably the same Mary that is mentioned in Matthew 27, 56. So they are going, and notice uh, what they're going, the purpose of their going is simply to see the tomb. That's their purpose in going, uh, simply to see it. And uh, verse 2, and behold, and that's always a cue that something big is going to happen, there was a great earthquake, and boy, that kind of connects with Good Friday, doesn't it? Except this time it's described as a great earthquake, or a big earthquake takes place. Why? The angel is the cause of it, for an angel of the Lord... Uh, not specific here, any name, but an angel of the Lord. So he's the cause of the earthquake and the rolling of the stone away. Descends from heaven, descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. <laughs> almost a, uh, some have commented that the sitting on the stone is almost a, a triumphant uh, position uh, to be in. But again, notice there, as we had uh, the earth shaking on Good Friday, as Christ dies on the cross, we have the earth shaking again, and in a much, apparently much more dramatic way here, described as a great earthquake that takes place. Um, and again, this angel comes down and rolls the stone back. Uh, verse 3, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. Uh, again, that glowing uh, effect we have of the face and then the clothing as a result, glowing as well. And verse 4, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Well, the uh, becoming like dead men, we think probably is that they passed out. Uh, they, they fainted right there. Um, 
Pilate, remember, had agreed to have a guard placed at the tomb. Uh, that's at the end, the very end of chapter 27 of Matthew, that uh, the Jews, Jewish officials come to uh, Pilate and say, now remember, uh, you know, place a guard there because uh, they, they apparently heard the talk of, of the resurrection as well and wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, this wasn't going to happen and, and that uh, they would take every step possible to ensure that it was not going to happen. So uh, I'll just read here from Matthew 27, uh, 62 and following. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So that's why these soldiers are there uh, in the first place. Uh, they, Pilate agreed to have the tomb guarded. And notice now, the two barriers that would have prevented the women from looking into the tomb have been removed. Uh, the stone has been rolled away by the angel, and at the sight of the angel, these guards uh, pass out, uh, are, are fainting. So those two obstacles to the women actually uh, seeing the empty tomb have now been removed. Verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. So in contrast to what the guards are, have experienced, the angel reassures these two women, Do not be afraid. For I know the reason that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Uh, and so they are simply uh, not to fear the reason. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Those words are, at least to me, very, very important. Remember how, how many times Christ predicted his resurrection. Um, you know, saying that he would go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priest, the scribe, and third day rise once again. Uh, if you want to at home, uh, take a look, for example, at Matthew 16, verse 21, or Matthew 17, verse 23, or Matthew 20, verse 19, and there are even other places. So again, just as he said... And again, we, we glean from this that God, and especially Christ in this case, was not just caught off guard uh, when he was crucified, that um, somehow making up the plan as he went. No, this has always been God's plan, that he would be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, crucified, and rise again on the third day. We go on then. Um, the angel says that, uh, as he said, come, he invites the women, come, see the place where he lay, or where he used to lay, we should say. Uh, so the angel is, is offering the women a proof of what he has just said. And again, this is one of the commands that are given here. Come, see the place where he lay. Then, after doing that, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, 
and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now, first of all, the angel allowing them to actually verify the fact that Christ's body is no longer in that tomb. And then it's not just to, not just to bask in that. Go quickly and tell his disciples. Of course, that would be the 11 remaining disciples minus Judas Iscariot, that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going to Galilee. There you will see him. I have told you. Uh, You know, this going ahead to Galilee, Jesus had actually predicted this himself, or or again, told them exactly what was going to happen. If you look back at Matthew 26, verses 31 and 32, um, well, I'll start at verse 30, actually. This is uh, the Maundy Thursday. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So there Christ had predicted on Monday, Thursday evening that he was going to, again, be raised from the dead and that he would go ahead of them to Galilee. So, uh, verse 8, So they, the women, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Can't imagine what those women must have been experiencing and feeling at that point. A great uh, combination uh, still of, of some fear after encountering an angel and great joy of course, that, that, at the news that Christ is not among the dead but among the living and that they will see him in Galilee. Uh, verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Here you see uh, Jesus taking the initiative here, uh, great care and concern for these women and what they had experienced And they are the ones who see him. Even before they get back to tell the disciples, Jesus meets them. And I don't know about you, but it just strikes me as rather plain or um, might say not very special at all, just the the plain greetings. And we don't want to let it slip by. Notice these women came up and took hold of his feet. This is a physical, bodily resurrection that uh, Christ has had. He is not just a spirit, not just an image, but actual physical feet. They took hold of them, and he wor- they worshipped him. Uh, this is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that uh, it, it says plainly that Jesus was worshipped, and it is this post-resurrection Jesus who is both touched in terms of his feet, but especially also is worshipped. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Again, that same greeting uh, that the angel, uh, or same uh, uh, statement the angel made to the women. Go and tell, notice how he, he refers to the disciples here, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, that that familial uh, term, my brothers, in speaking about the disciples and the close relationship 
that Jesus had with them and they with him um, is really kind of nice to see there. Well, that is the entire account, and of course, we're going to be hearing uh, on Easter Sunday uh, the proclamation, uh, not just the facts of what happened, but of course, what this means for us, uh, the incredible uh, history-changing, eternity-changing day that Christ is not among the dead, but among the living, and what that means for us. Uh, I think of a chapter like 1 Corinthians 15, a whole chapter dedicated to the resurrection, where Paul speaks about the implications of the resurrection and talks about if Christ is not raised, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we know that just as Christ is raised from the dead, so we too who are baptized children of God, who have been blessed with, with faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sin, we too will rise on that day when Christ returns. And just like Christ's resurrection, it will be a physical, bodily resurrection from the grave. And our bodies now that are, are corruptible, have been corrupted by sin, and infiltrated by the impacts of sin will be incorruptible on that day. And our bodies that now are mortal and subject to death will be immortal on that day. There will be no more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more pain, for he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That's the wonderful, triumphant message that, that we proclaim on Easter. It's the wonderful, triumphant reality that we as Christians live with from day to day. It is all ours, of course, by the grace of God, his undeserved, unmerited love and favor for each one of us. And so we'll be looking forward to hearing more of that. I personally will be looking forward very much to preaching that uh, next Sunday and uh, make that available, of course, online for our members and for all, really, uh, to share. With that then, let's move on now to the second lesson. This is Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. And we want to talk a little bit here about the fact that right here at this point in the book of Colossians, we move from what we might call the doctrinal section, the first couple of chapters, where a lot of teaching, especially uh, baptism, uh, is, is laid forth. Now starting with 3 verse 1, we start talking about the practical implications of this teaching for our lives as Christians. And so we have Paul here laying out for us, um, what does this mean, we might say, as Lutherans, a good Lutheran question. Uh, what does this mean? Let's read through. There are only four verses here. Let's read through all the verses first, and then we'll go back and kind of take this apart a bit and examine it. Starting at verse 1, then, of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him 
in glory. All right, let's go back now and take a look. So first of all, you might uh, say that uh, we're talking again about the implications of this. How should we then live? What, what impact uh, does our Christian faith have on us, on our priorities, on our living from day to day? Paul starts off, if then you have been raised with Christ, and in fact, we talk about, and he already has talked about, in Colossians 2, verse 12, Paul has already said that in baptism, uh, they were both buried with Christ and raised with Christ. It's very similar, uh, calls to mind Romans chapter 6, the first part of Romans chapter 6, where Paul, again, speaks about our baptism as having been buried with Christ and then raised with him to new life. It is a way of, of saying that our baptism connects us and makes us one with Christ so that his death on the cross is our death, that his being raised to new life is our being raised to new life both new life that we share here on this earth as forgiven sons and daughters of God, and then also that new life that we will have that we just spoke about when on the day when Christ returns, that our resurrected life, we might say, uh, for eternity. So Paul, again, makes that, that very um, uh, close and, and intimate connection between uh, baptism and what it does for us in terms of our connection to Christ. Now, if you have been raised with Christ, and, and of course the implication is, yes, they have and we have, what then? Seek the things, and that's a, that's a present imperative, a present command, is to be repeatedly an ongoing characteristic of who we are as Christians. Seek the things that are above. In other words, Seek the spiritual things, the heavenly things, we might say, versus the earthly uh, things that are here. And maybe just a word about this. It's not that Paul here is uh, despising things here on this earth. Um, we admire many, many things on this earth as being good gifts from God to us. And that includes material things and the physical things that we have in this world. They are wonderful gifts from God to us. So it's not that, that Paul is despising those things and saying that we should have nothing to do with them. But in, rather, seek the, the spiritual things, the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, and so we think about seeking that or putting our mind on those things. Um, where are our priorities or where are they to be as baptized children of God who have been raised to new life with him? You know, it's, it's an opportunity for us to step back as we think about these verses and reflect upon our own life, uh, reflect upon the blessings that we have as baptized children of God, and say, now, how is that influencing my daily choices in life? And it is making a daily use of our baptism as well. As we turn away from that old nature, that old sinful nature, that still, unfortunately, we carry around with us, and with the power and help of God, turn daily 
uh, to our baptized reality, our baptized life uh, here even as we are still in this world. Uh, a word about this right hand of God at the end of verse 1. And of course that we know is a reference to his seat of power and authority. Uh, it's a quote of, of Psalm 110. Uh, it's quoted Matthew 22:44. We have a quote of uh, Psalm 110 by Jesus uh, quoting that. Uh, it, it refers to, and we have an expression today, I guess you'd say, kind of similar to that. We talk about someone, maybe, a, a, for example, the vice president might be the right-hand man of the president, for example. So it's the, the person who is, in, in our world, is in the position of power and authority and uh, able to get a lot done. Um, uh, and, and here we think of Christ, that right hand is, in terms of all creation, is the place of all power and glory. Uh, we think of Philippians chapter 2, where God highly exalted Christ and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're talking about here, that, that Christ today, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God. Then verse 2, Paul writes, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Very much repeating again the same line of thinking that he had in verse 1. You know, to set our mind on things. What is it that we focus upon? What is it that we, we think about? What is it that influences our priorities in life? And what are our priorities in life? And here Paul would encourage us to, to look up, you might say, uh, not to be so focused on the things of this earth that, let's face it, are, are transitory, are only temporary in nature, but to set our minds on those things that are spiritual, that are heavenly, that are going to be eternal for us. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Wow, where is it that we have died? Again, in our baptism, what we talked about right at the beginning of this verse, and again referencing Romans chapter 6. Um, we have died in the sense that we have died to sin, uh, that we are no longer servants of sin, but rather servants of our Savior. Uh, and again, baptism is where this happens. Our sins are washed away. We are made children of God and made heirs of everlasting life. And now that life that we have is hidden with Christ in God. That, that triumphant eternal life that we have, it is our possession right now. Uh, John 3, I believe it's 36, he who has the Son has eternal life present tense. Um, that is by and large hidden from the world, isn't it? Uh, it's not something that I can look at a person and see. It's not readily apparent. In fact, uh, I've said many times that, you know, you look at the lives of some Christians and it seems that they have more suffering and more hardship than many people, many non-Christians do. And so, 
it, it, it is not something, this, this uh, new life that we have, is not something that is always uh, apparent at all. It is, in fact, very hidden. But on the last day, it will be fully revealed. Uh, when Christ returns in all power and in all glory, when our bodies are raised new, uh, glorious bodies, and again, uh, when we live uh, in his presence triumphantly, victoriously for eternity. So um, then looking on at verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There again, uh, looking forward to that day when we are promised that we too will appear with him in glory. I love that reference that Paul makes to Christ, who is your life. You, know, you think of the John 11 uh, statement by Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We will never cease to exist. Uh, we will, from the, from the moment that our pulse rate and brain waves stop, we will be in his presence with the Lord and we'll continue to be with the Lord uh, later, even bodily on the day when Christ returns. We will never cease to exist. We will never cease being in his presence. What an incredible, incredible blessing that we have been given. And you know, there's um, a little bit of what we might call the, the already and the not yet that's operating here. As we mentioned, we already have this sure and certain gift from God. It is already ours. It's not something that we wait until we die to receive. It is ours right now. And yet there's a sort of a, a not yet, uh, when we think of the, the full um, uh, fruition of all of this, that, you know, to, at the moment of our death, that as Paul says, we are with the Lord. Uh, Paul says, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Uh, and later on says that his desire is to depart and be with the Lord, which is better by far. And again, there is that, that full fruition that, that we will experience from the moment of our death uh, when we are with the Lord, uh, and then again even added to when Christ returns and our bodies are raised, and our bodies also are, are with the Lord for an eternity. There's, so there's this, this kind of dual uh, sense going on here that this is already ours, and, and we have it fully. There's, there's, not, there's no more promise that we haven't received that we're going to get someday. It's already been granted. But there is the, the not yet in the sense that you know, we look forward um, to so much more in the full experience, the full fruition uh, of that. And what a blessing that is when we think uh, not only for ourselves and what that means for ourselves, but what that means for our loved ones as well, you know, for our parents, for our brothers and sisters, for our children, for our grandchildren, uh, what an incredible blessing that is for all of us as we think about the blessings that we have in and through Christ. So this is a wonderful section in Colossians 3, this, these, just these four verses, and of course very appropriate 
on Easter Sunday as we, we think about, again, the victory that Christ has given to each and every one of us through faith. All right, well, let's go on, and we'll finish the final lesson. And again, I'm, I'm taking the option of utilizing the Acts 10 uh, verses uh, instead of the Jeremiah. There is a choice to be made there. Uh, not a right or wrong choice, I don't think, by any stretch, but uh, again, there are options there. First of all, maybe just a little background into what, as to what's going on here. Uh, we're going to hear Peter give quite a, um, a lengthy uh, uh, sermon, I guess you would say, proclamation, uh, to Cornelius. So let's back up for a little bit um, and see what happened up to this point in Acts 10. Uh, at the beginning of Acts 10, we have uh, Cornelius identified as a centurion. Now, a centurion uh, was a Roman soldier and was in charge of 100 men, or was placed in authority over 100 Roman soldiers, generally speaking. He's also de uh, described as a devout man who feared God, prayed continually to God and gave alms to God as well. So here is a Gentile, a Roman soldier, who is a God-fearer. Uh, in other words, uh, worshipped God, devout man, prayed continually to God. But we have no indication uh, in Acts 10 yet that he had knowledge of Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior. Uh, so, Cornelius is praying, and an angel comes to him and tells him to send men and bring the disciple Peter to him. So, go and get the disciple Peter and bring Peter uh, to, to you. And, and, in other words, Peter's going to have something to tell him. Then we break away in the middle portion of Acts 10, and we break away to Peter, who has a vision and this vision is one of a great sheet coming down from heaven on its four corners. And inside this sheet, or on it, there were all different kinds of animals, um, reptiles, birds. And Peter is commanded in this vision to rise, kill, and eat. And Peter objects and refuses, saying, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. So Peter is being given a lesson in this vision that the Old Testament dietary ceremonial laws, first of all, no longer need to be followed, but given even a bigger lesson beyond that, because uh, the voice then says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common or do not call unclean. And we're going to see that this basic principle is expanded, not just talking about what one can eat or not eat, but is expanded to people as well. And we go to the reference here of the Jews and the Gentiles, that Jews should not be thinking of Gentiles as unclean. And, of course, we know that that went against the very grain of the relationships that Jews had with Gentiles at the time of Jesus. Uh, very, very uh, strict 
rules and regulations that the Pharisees in particular had drawn up concerning any interaction with, uh, with Gentiles, especially eating with them. Uh, when Jews would come home from the market, uh, they would wash things off for fear that a Gentile may have touched them. Uh, just incredible um, uh, sanctions uh, uh, on the actions of Jews when it came to interfacing with Gentiles. And so Peter here uh, is shown that he can eat anything, that nothing God has made is unclean, and again, that same basic principle is extrapolated to talk about people now as well. And we get the great sense here that the gospel, of course, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just for Jews. It is for the entire world. So what we have now, uh, as we zero in on the verses of our, of our reading, is Peter coming to Cornelius now, who has summoned him, and we hear what Peter tells Cornelius. So again, Cornelius has had a vision and been told, get some men together and go get the disciple Peter and bring him to you. In the meantime, Peter has had this vision that nothing that God has created is to be unclean. And so we pick up the action right at this point now, Acts 10, verses 34 to 43. Uh, first of all, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. So Peter has learned the lesson here very, very well. Uh, I understand, I comprehend that God, you might say, God plays no favorites that there is to be no prioritizing of one people above another. And again, what an incredible, incredibly different way of thinking that was for a first century Jew. We'll pick up uh, later when we get to Acts 15, for example, uh, what a struggle the early Christian church had with this whole question of the Gentiles. And the big question was, when a Gentile is converted and, and becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, do they also have to become Jews? Um, do they have to uh, follow uh, the rules and regulations as a Jew would when it came to everything from food, uh, circumcision, uh, other, other uh, types of questions? And uh, Acts 15 settles that. Uh, Galatians settles that, for example, uh, as well. Uh, but anyway, going back to our text, uh, again, there is to be no prejudice of any type. God shows no partiality. Verse 35, but notice here, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Notice again these broad, all-inclusive terms. Every nation. You know, we think of the gospel in a nutshell, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The world and whoever believes in him. You know, no restrictions uh, by race or age or gender or any other factor. Uh, we think of uh, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And again, we get that sense right here. Notice it's anyone who fears him, or we might say uh, worships, reveres, and does what is right. Now, that's not to be interpreted as works righteousness, but as, again, a response of faith is acceptable to him, to God, again, who shows no partiality. Verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Well, first of all, let's back up just for a second there. The word that he sent to Israel is, again, the preaching, that's the word, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. We think of Christ's own statement there, peace I give to you, my, or peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. There is that peace that only Christ can bring, and it is the peace, of course, of knowing that all is right between God and us once again, that our relationship has been restored, that through Christ we have been reconciled to God, brought back to God, that uh, that which had separated us from him, namely our sin, has been removed by God himself, specifically by Christ, by his blood shed, by his life given. So we have peace through Jesus Christ. And notice that is the only way to have real, genuine peace is through Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't come any other way. And then notice there what looks like a creedal statement, he is Lord of all. Um, one of the earliest uh, creeds in the Christian church was that, that statement, Jesus is Lord. And we don't have a whole lot of time here to delve into it, but it is equating Jesus with Yahweh, with God, the Old Testament, that Jesus is not just a man, not just a great teacher, uh, not just a great example of a moral life. He certainly is all those things, but he is Lord. He is God. Um, and so uh, notice parenthetically, uh, Peter uh, gets that in. Then verse 37, you yourselves know, so they had heard of Jesus, what happened throughout all Judea, beginning uh, from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So this, they have, Peter is going to recount here the, the three-year ministry of Jesus in a nutshell. What happened after John baptized Jesus? And they all had heard about this. Cornelius and the others who were with him, and those who brought, uh, the men that brought Peter to him, had all heard about these things beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John had proclaimed, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And boy, we think of uh, the baptism of Jesus, where the Holy Spirit um, comes down in the form of a dove and lights on him. That, of course, is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verse 1 and following. And let me just for a moment uh, turn to that and read it. And uh, 
Isaiah 61, verse 1, and we believe this is the servant himself, the pre-incarnate Christ speaking here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And you can't read those verses from Isaiah 61, uh, speaking uh, of Christ, describing uh, Christ actually speaking here, without thinking about that incident that occurs in Luke chapter 4. And again, a, a dramatic incident when Jesus comes to the synagogue, and this is the synagogue in his hometown of uh, Nazareth, and we read here in Luke 4, beginning with, uh, I'll, I'll begin with verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled a scroll and found the place where it is written, was written. And here again, we have a quote of the exact uh, place where I just read from Isaiah 61 in our English Bibles. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one who was speaking in Isaiah chapter 61. I am the one upon whom the Spirit rested, just as Isaiah 61 predicted. And we're going to go on here and see that as uh, Peter is speaking in Acts 10, he must have had this in mind because he goes on to say other things that were uh, mentioned in Isaiah 61 that um, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Uh, all that he did included uh, what exactly Isaiah 61 was predicting, that he was predicting he would do. Uh, recovery of sight to the blind, release of those who were captive, and so on. So, again, Peter is saying, you know, you've heard about all that he did. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God, especially and particularly in Isaiah 61. And um, healing all who were oppressed by the devil is just, again, a, you might say a summary statement. Again, uh, oppressed by the devil in terms of not only physically with things that were wrong with them as a result of sin being in this world, but especially captive to the devil in terms of their sin and uh, condemnation. For God was with him. And verse 39, and we are witnesses. So Peter is saying that he is a witness. Remember that in Acts chapter 1, that was one of the requirements uh, when Matthias was replaced, that they were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. We are witnesses here of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They 
put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And that hanging him on a tree is just a, a way of referring to crucifixion at that time. Uh, and it's probably a reference also, uh, at least an allusion, to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Cursed is anyone, in other words, who is crucified. And just a demonstration once again of how terrible crucifixion was, but again as reserved only uh, for those who were the most shameful of people. And again, what, what an irony there, that the one who is totally innocent and blameless and righteous is executed in the way that was reserved only for those who were the most shameful in the world. Um, you know, what irony in that. But he says there, they uh, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Calls to mind, of course, that we can't pass the buck there, so to speak, and blame others for the death of Christ. You know, our sins are also the cause of his having to go to that cross. Um, notice the contrast that's coming here, though. So they, this is the way humans treated Christ, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But, verse 40, but, now notice how God treats him. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. And so, again, we have man putting Jesus to death on a cross. We have God raising him on the third day and made him to appear. Uh, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Again, that reference to, to Acts 1, um, certainly in our mind, that the disciples, the apostles, were witnesses, not only of all that Christ did, uh, but of, it, of the resurrected Christ, of course. Um, and we think of all the post-resurrection appearances that Christ made. You know, again, 1 Corinthians 15 um, summarizes some of those. We have them also in the Gospels. Uh, you know, East, even Easter afternoon, the two men on the road to Emmaus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes more than 500 people at one time. We don't have that exact incident recorded, uh, but what an you know, incredible array of post-resurrection appearances. Uh, Easter evening to the disciples when they're behind locked doors and Thomas is not there. A week later uh, with the disciples behind locked doors and Thomas being present. You know, fishing along the Sea of Galilee with eight of the disciples present. And the list goes on and on. And again, you stop and think to yourself, did Christ have to make all these appearances? No, but for 40 days. He condescended to, you might say, condescended to the disciples' need to see him, to touch him, uh, even to have him eat in their presence. Again, proving to them beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a physical, bodily resurrection that he has experienced. And for 40 days he did this prior to his ascension. And we are forever blessed that he did uh, as a church also because, again, how wonderful uh, for us to be able to read these post-resurrection appearances and be blessed by them as well. Notice again how Peter says, 
who ate, we ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Again, that physical bodily resurrection. He's not just a spirit, not just an image floating around. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Isn't it wonderful when you stop and think about it that the one who is going to judge us on the last day, the one before whom we will appear on the last day, as will all people, is the very same one who went to the cross and there laid down his life for us. Um, I think of Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul talks about how uh, Christ washed us and made us clean without any spot or wrinkle or blemish that he might present to himself the church without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And so, again, he is the one who both makes us worthy uh, through, no, through no doing of our own. He makes us worthy by his blood shed in and through the water and word of baptism that is ours. And then he is the one before whom we appear on the last day. How wonderful, how comforting that is when we stop and think about it. Last verse, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone, notice again the universality here, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. His name implies everything that he has done in order to save us. His life perfectly lived, his death passively uh, enduring uh, the, the death on the cross for us, and then his rising to new life once again. Proof positive in that resurrection that God has accepted his sacrifice as payment in full for your sin and for all sin and all evil. There's nothing more that needs to be done, not by Christ, not by you, not by me. It has all been done. When he said on the cross, it is finished, that is exactly what he meant. That word for finished means to come uh, across a, a goal line, come across a finish line, to, to bring something to its full state of completion. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. And you and I today uh, have that joy-filled message not only to apply to our own lives, but to proclaim to the world. And we ask God's blessing as we do just that, as his church. And with that then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Blessings upon you, especially during this most holy week.